My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. This episode is brought to you by Buyers Agency Australia. Discovering the game Monopoly, you know. Um, I was you know, absolutely mesmerised by that game and didn't understand anything about property investment or didn't understand, you know, the whole concept of property portfolios. That's sort of what I'm doing in real life now. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with property developer Danny Chiyama, founder of award-winning company Urban DC and a 20-year veteran of the property industry. Follow his journey from the family farm to the city of Melbourne, from architect to developer, all the way to becoming one of Australia's most innovative developers from just a $2,000 loan. If you were to meet Chiyama today based on his accomplishments, you might think he has always been a successful property entrepreneur, someone who started at the top and kept going. But in reality, it's his experience of various roles within the property world that give him an edge. I've been developing some, you know, medium um, to high density um, residential buildings for around 20 years now. Um, started out as a registered architect. Um, but pretty quickly moved into uh, project management and development management and then um, became a developer very early uh, in my career. In the last 15 years, I've you know, completed over, say, 20 development projects um, and currently with Urban DC, I've got two, two projects under construction, um, one in uh, 308 Carlisle Street, Balaclava, which is 38 apartments um, over retail. I've got one um, under construction in Roselle uh, in Sydney, uh, which is 22 high-end apartments. Um, And I'm about to uh, uh, market uh, a project I've got in Caulfield, which consists of 18 large owner-occupier apartments. Uh, And I've got, you know, further two projects in in planning at the moment in Sydney. One's in Rose Bay and uh, the other's in Bondi Junction. Um, Yeah, and and just completed... um, a building in Brighton, uh, which is 26 uh, high-end owner-occupier apartments um, called Oscar Brighton. And only a couple of weeks ago, uh, that that building won the Bayside Council Design Excellence Awards for medium density housing. So that's uh, a nice accolade to have. The development industry never stays still and neither does Chiyama. No two days are ever the same. 
got several projects on the go, so I'm constantly uh, rotating from from one project to the other, um, and depending on on the the phase uh, a particular project is in, that will determine how much. I spend on one project. You know, I might spend three quarters of a day focusing on one element of a project, and then, you know, ten minutes on another one, and and so forth. So, um, you know, it's just whatever's required. So, I'll, you know, it, it, I might be going to a planning meeting, talking about all the the issues surrounding about that um, for our submission. And then I might um, move on to a marketing meeting to talk about the the brand. Uh, the brand mark for the project and and, and marketing material. Um, I'll might go to a site meeting and, and talk to the builder about how the progress is going on site. Um, visit sites uh, whilst I'm doing my due diligence. Um, and there's a lot of desk work too. You know, undertaking feasibility studies, um, talking to valuers, talking to bankers. Um, you know, right through to marking up plans with a red pen, which I often do. Send it back to the architect. Um, and the list goes on. So yeah, it's just you know rotating, rotating through all those elements that's required in order to keep the projects going. Growing up, Chiama's career dreams didn't seem to fit his country's surroundings. So I grew up in Kilmore, Country Victoria. Um, yeah. So um, uh, dad, my dad was a um, uh, trained horses and um, harness racing. So I grew up on the farm with lots of animals and horses and. Um, and, you know, I've spent most of my childhood either um, sitting on a sulky behind a horse or, or at the races. But family experiences can be the most powerful of influences. I went to a school in the country, but um, from, from an early age, I always wanted to be an architect. So, um, you know, I from as, as early as I could remember, um, I, I loved drawing and, and sort of loved property. Uh, my dad prior to training horses was a um, a builder developer so he built um, spec homes and, and apartment buildings and you know from an early age I was always on building sites and you know can still um, remember the smell of sawn timber you know when the framing material was going up um, and I remember you know playing around in the garage and that you know at the age of eight and and looking at um, all the architectural plans, all the um, documentation that Dad had for all these building projects, and I was just mesmerised by it. You know, and that was back in the days when it was all hand drawn. Chiama's beginnings in the property world proved that inspiration can come from the simplest of places. I just knew then I want to do this. You know, I want to be an architect. Um, so you know, I always had a, a flair for it, and always knew what I wanted to do, and which was good for me because it gave me a lot of focus whilst I was at school. Um, had something to work towards um, and in terms of property itself you know even I remember at that stage discovering the game Monopoly you know um, I was you know, absolutely mesmerised by that game and didn't understand anything about property investment or didn't understand you know the whole concept of property portfolio but I just loved that game and the idea of buying multiple properties and uh, working your way up to, you know, building hotels on your sites. It was just amazing and, you know, and that's that's sort of what I'm doing in real life now. Like many students, Chiama learnt more about hard work outside university than in it. I went straight to uni. Um, it was a, a five-year course, so it's a long course um, and I did the last year 
um, over two years because I wanted to work. I just couldn't wait to get out there. So I worked in an architectural practice um, whilst I was studying part-time for the last two years. So, no, straight into it. I did the odd job whilst I was going through uni um, to help put myself through. You know, I did everything from, you know, kitchen hand, chef, um, you know, cook at KFC. I was a waiter, a barman, I steam cleaned cups. I did all of that. Um, but, you know, professionally, I went straight into architecture. Chiama's path from entry-level architect to powerhouse property developer certainly wasn't straightforward. However, he says every challenging experience was really preparation in disguise. I was in it for about two to three years. Um, you have to do a two-year period to um, fill out a logbook and become registered. I wanted to become registered. You know, I, I, I'd come so far, I wanted to be able to say I can call myself an architect. So I did that and probably after about three years, I, um, I got, in, got into project management at um, Village Roadshow and that was a great um, experience because uh, you got to see so many different facets of the building process, you know, not only did we manage um, the fit-out contractor, we also managed um, the relationship with the landlord because it was always in, you know, like shopping centres. So there was a lot of lessor, lessee type um, relationships that had to be managed and then um, over and above that we had our own... um, our own contractors, our FF&A or fit-out contractors, you know, the carpet, the curtains, the seating, projections. Um, and, and, you know, so there was a whole heap of things that had to be managed. So you really, really uh, – it was a great training ground to sharpen your skills in project management. Look, um, testing my memory now, but probably five or six years. Yeah, it was five or six years I got sent over to Geneva to develop the first um, multiplex in, in Switzerland for Village Roadshow. So um, I did that. And then when I got back, I, I knew I wanted to move into development. Um, and that's when I got a job for at Dockner's Authority as um, development director, which was a really good springboard into the development industry. In fact, without all his lived experiences and his training opportunities, Chiaman knows he wouldn't be the developer he is today. It's a funny thing, you know, you, people... A lot of people jump into property development. Um, I know. Would you jump into a, um, you know, uh, in, into a uh, surgery, you know, and, and operate on someone if you didn't train as a doctor? You know what I mean. So it, it's um, people seem to think that um, anyone can can do it, but it takes a lot of time and and years of experience to get it right. Reflecting on his own journey, Chiamo realizes there isn't one path to property development. If there is one essential quality or requirement, it might be the opportunity to just practice your skills. I think now, back in back in my day, there was never really a property development um, course at uni. I think now there may be. Um, there was always project management courses and they were even sort of quite new even back then. I'm talking, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, it's, look, people come into the industry from many different um, avenues, you know, there's architects that become developers, there's um, quantity surveyors, there's builders, there's, um, y- you know, there's all types of people that, that enter the field and everyone has their own journey and experience. I'm not, I mean, you know, the, the, the probably easiest thing to do is get a job with a developer and, and, you know, learn project management skills, start off as a junior sort of assistant project manager and, and work your way up to development manager. That's that's what I would recommend. Um, and, you know, even when I was um, doing architecture or working as a young project manager at Village Roadshow, I was always buying 
uh, apartments and houses and renovating them. And, you know, I always did that on the side. So you sharpen your skills bit by bit sort of outside of the workforce as well. Chiyama knows that the best thing of learning is hands-on and he's reaped the rewards of collaboration in his own professional life. Prior to Urban DC, which I started about five years ago, I was in um, partnership um, in a company called Urban Inc. So we had that for about seven or eight years um, and that was in my own right with another partner. And, you know, we did lots of projects there as well. Um, and prior to that, what really gave me sort of the head start was I, um, I entered a, into a partnership with um, a, a well-known developer at the time called Morris Schwartz, who um, invited me in as a as a partner in a company called Pan Urban, um, and that you know that was oh, probably probably around about twenty years ago actually, um, and I was managing director of Pan Urban and um, a part took a partner there, and that was you know a really good entree into property development. So I had a, an, an older mentor that sort of, um, you know, taught me the ropes and um, or helped me sharpen my skills and, and yeah, I moved on from there. So I have been, you know, doing it for about 20 years um, but, in, but in, in different phases with partnerships with people. Building upon years of experience as a developer, Chiama now feels confident to manage his projects alone, giving him the freedom to be flexible. However, he knows going solo is a unique skill. You don't have to um, check with your partner, you know, decisions, decisions you're making. Are you happy with that? Yeah, well, you know, and you, each partner are equal. You know, you're always checking with each other and you're always on, pretty much always on the same page. But you run your own race, you know, you, you run your own race. You know, sometimes you need partners because sometimes if you may not have the, the overall rounded experience, you might be stronger in one aspect of of development and your partner might be better in another you know i mean there's lots of people that come together where someone might have great financing skills knows how to you know um, arrange capital or raise capital and then he might get into partnership with someone um, that understands construction you know and has a building background and those two sort of um, complement each other so it just depends on your own you know i, I tend to have a well-rounded um, balance you know of experience amongst all facets of the of the industry so i'm okay to go it alone you know one minute you've got your 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 design hat on marking up plans the next minute you're you're looking at a feasibility trying to work out a cash flow and the internal rate of return and then the next minute you're talking to the lawyer about an agreement next minute you're talking to a builder about you know construction techniques and types of materials so you you need to know you know a little bit about everything. Chiyama's first property purchase was anything but conventional and hilariously much more than money was at stake. Funny story, my wife likes hearing this story and she reminds me about it a lot. Um, so when I was about 26, um, 1998, around about there, um, look, I always wanted to buy property. I just started working and, and never really had much money. Um, I read a book called Building Wealth Through Investment Property by Jan Summers. Um, that that was a life-changing book for me. I loved that book and I've still got it on my bookcase and always referred to it. Um, and, you know, some of the things in that book were about, you know, buying multiple properties and sitting on them and, you know, watching them go up in value and then drawing against them and all of that. So I wanted to do that, but I, I just didn't have the money. Um, and I was only sort of a couple of years into, you know, a lowly paid sort of graduate architect's job um, barely had money to sort of pay for the, the car and the rent rent every week. Um, so 
I started going out at that time. I started going out with my now wife Michelle. And, um, I recall taking her out to um, uh, you know auctions and open for inspections on weekends. I just can't believe she put up with it, but she did, which was good. Um, and anyway, eventually found a great little apartment, one bedroom apartment in um, South Yarra. Uh, you know, brown brick building, Punt Road, noisy street. Um, it was probably at the cheaper range of what I could afford. Um, and and I purchased it. And, you know, back then there were like any number of one-bedroom apartments around South Yarra, Paran, um, for between $90,000 and $100,000. Um, uh, and, you know, it, that was at the time when Rams and Aussie Home Loans were lending 95% LVR um, on, on your mortgages. So... I need. I bought, I bought one. I found one, and um, it was ninety-five thousand. I needed nine and a half thousand dollars to complete the transaction. Right? Problem was, I only had four thousand in the bank. Um, so I, uh, I sheepishly asked uh, Michelle, my girlfriend at the time, for a loan, and without question, she lent me two thousand um, dollars. And then I drew out uh, cash from my credit card for the balance and scraped it all together and got the nine and a half grand and settled the property. Um, problem I had was I, I um, was getting paid on a monthly basis and I had three weeks to go before my next paycheck. So I had to go and get a personal loan uh, for $5,000. Back then, I don't know if they can they do it now, but back then they processed those loans pretty quickly. Um, got a $5,000 loan, paid back Michelle within two to three weeks um, and lived off the rest until, you know, from paycheck to paycheck and slowly paid off my loan and the credit card. So that's how I got into property. Thankfully, his relationship was built on strong foundations and as it turns out, so was that very first investment, even if it was hard going along the way. The good thing back then was you could those, those, those apartments were returning 7%. Um, yield and and interest rates were seven percent, so you know it was cash flow neutral. Um, I rented it out for a year, um, and then uh, was able got got on top of things a bit more financially and was able to move in. Um, and I spent about five five thousand dollars on you know I laid floorboards myself and Michelle and I painted the walls, and um, and a couple of years after that we needed to sell as i mentioned before you know we moved on to bigger apartments and and bought a little house and needed to sell and you know probably two to three years later i sold for 178,000 so you know i made i made 70,000 dollars clear and and that was an amazing um uh feeling to sort of turn over a property and end up with 70,000 in the bank um so that's that's um you know, that sort of left a big impact on me and thought, I want more of this, I want to keep doing this. Um, you know, so it's been stepping stones along the way. So I did that and um, not long after I bought my property, um, Michelle bought a two-bedroom apartment in Paran, um, which we lived in when, when we got married. Um, that, you know, she paid 150 for that and when we sold it, we sold it, you know, about four years later for 350 um, so, you know, we sold as we went in order to cash up to buy, you know, our modest first home, you know, so it was stepping stones along the way. And I look back now and go, oh, geez, if I had held those properties, they'd be worth a lot more. But at the time, you don't, you, you feel as if, you know, you don't want to sort of take on too much debt and you feel like you, you need to sort of free it up and, and sort of convert it into different properties as you go. Like any effective strategy, 
the rewards from Chiyama's first purchase were a sign of future possibilities in the world of property investment. The confidence in his long-term strategy was validated. And I think that was a, a nice validation moment that, ah, this works. So, I guess, yeah, in that respect, yes. Um, no, the, 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 it's those aha moments sort of are built up over time, many different experiences, I think. Um, there was one moment which I can recall um, which is more about property development. Um, when I was at uni in my architecture course, we did a we were in a class um, called feasibility studies, and it was at the time when I really just sort of loved um, design, um, the built form, architecture. Um, didn't really sort of know at that point in time that I wanted to, you know, be a developer as such. Um, it was more about being an architect, and the lecturer put on the board um, a feasibility where, you know, he explained to us how you can calculate the gross area, gross floor area of a building and put a, you know, apply a building rate against that and then you you work out an efficiency and then you apply a sales rate against the, the sales um, uh, net sellable area um, and then you build up a feasibility and, um, and, and you work out a profit, no? And that was an aha moment for me because what that taught me was, how to monetize my love for the built form, all right? So it was the economics behind property. Um, so that was the moment, I think, was the crossroads where I knew, oh, I get it now. This is how you make money out of property. Because prior to that, it was all about how do you create a beautiful building? What do, what does, you know, what do human beings want? When You know, what amenity do they need? The built environment, the built form, all about that. And then all of a sudden was like, this is the economics behind it. Um, that was probably the aha moment for me. From his earliest development roles, he has been focusing on a niche that he is passionate about and that sells. In Urbanic, we targeted the investment market um, and, and that was probably a function of the of the timing of that market. The, the investment market was very strong um, and the Urbanic model was to develop um, smaller sort of investment-driven apartments that were delivered to the market at a, an affordable price point, um, but you know, dressed up to to look really good. Um, it, design was always important to us, so our buildings always looked spectacular, and they were always built well. Um, and and that was our market, and we used to sell through investment groups, um, and uh, and and some were offshore sales as well. When I started Urban Inc, I, I really focused on um, doing smaller boutique buildings that were um, targeted towards the owner-occupiers um, and, and better, more higher-end buildings. And, and that's what every building that I've done so far in, within Urban DC is, is within that sort of those parameters. Um, so, you know, I just get um, more pleasure out of designing a large three-bedroom or a large two-bedroom apartment that has really nice, spacious rooms, um, better finishes, you know, just better environments for people to live in rather than targeting the smaller apartments for the young students, you know. Um, so that's that's the Urban DC model. That's owner-occupier yeah, owner uh, product in infill, on infill sites in um, established suburbs. While it might seem like the rise of owner-occupiers is a recent trend, Chiyama says it's actually not as new as we think. In fact, it makes sense according to market conditions. There's, there's no doubt that um, the market 
that market segment is stronger. Um, and there's no doubt that the investment market has um, become you know, weaker and it's not as strong as it used to be. Uh, yeah, so that's one driver. But look, I think that market's always been there. Um, I think, you know, with when I was with Pan Urban, we, we developed 401 St Kilda Road, which was very, very high end. And it was one of the first wave of um, owner-occupier um, buildings. And at the time, there were several being built. It was around about 2007. And that was the first wave. Um, the very first was the Melbourneian, which was a cycle, you know, a, a property cycle before that. Um, and but in 2007, there was Lucient, um, one Clarendon Street, four on one St Kilda Road. There were a few projects that were targeting um, those owner occupiers, and I think that was probably the first time they really, or the baby boomers really started to sort of um, start that journey of downsizing. Since then, I think it's always been there, um, and I just think what's happened is the uh, population growth and, you know, Im immigrants coming in and Asian students and just population growth in general has created a demand for investment-driven stocks. So, you know, a lot of the developers focused on that. But even even during that period of time, I still think there was um, there was a, a demand for owner-occupier stock, and I think that's going to continue. I think that's an upward trend, particularly as the younger generations come through. I think the baby boomers are the first cab off the rank that sort of experienced this, um, you know, this apartment living. I think the likes of you and me and, and, and generations even before us, um, it just becomes more commonplace. It just becomes a common thing that, oh, yeah, I'll sell my house and I'll move into an apartment. Um, so that I think that market's going to get stronger. Even 20-year players like Chiyama don't always get it right, especially when the very precious are like wreck havoc on our long-term mindset. According to him, the best thing we can do is just move forward and keep going. I've had projects that have um, been good projects. I've had projects that have been great projects. Um, they've all been good on a level. Um, and I've always sort of tended to make money out of property and, and never lost it. Um, look, my, my, the only way I could really answer that question is to say that my biggest regret is um, selling some of the properties that I have. You know, I, I sold... Um, I've sold properties along the way and I look back now and, and I know they've tripled in value and and I know at the time I probably could have held on to them but I just thought, oh, yeah, it's run its race, I'll sell it and move on. Um, so my regret is actually selling and, and not holding. Um, but, you know, I guess as time goes on, you, you sort of realise sometimes you need to retire some debt, um, free up some capital, uh, in order to move into something else, um, which was, you know, what I did, but I regret it. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Chiyama's tips for new investors. The way to overcome it is to not not strive to have the luxury home in Rose Bay for your first house, right? Um, or Turak or whatever it is. Um, you need to start small and build it up. As well as some important development discernment. First and foremost is you need to find the right suburbs and the right locations that have a catchment of downsizers that have the ability to sell their home and move into that location or move within that location. And that's next. I'm Torrance Shum and you're listening to Property Investory.
Do you find yourself stressed out not knowing how or where to find the best property deals? Or what the best strategy is to build a wealth generating portfolio? Well, Dragon Dominski can help you while you save time and money. With about two decades of experience as an investor and expert buyer's agent, he finds positively geared properties with development potentials and secures and negotiates off-market deals for his clients. Now, he's offering you a no-obligation 45-minute strategy call to get you started. Just simply text the code BAA with your name and email address to 0405-105-074 to get your no-obligation free 45-minute strategy call. With the benefit of hindsight, Chiama now understands there's no better strategy than hard work. People have high expectations today. Um, I think you, you need to the, the the way to overcome it is to not not strive to have the luxury home in Rose Bay for your first house, right, um, or Turak or whatever it is. Um, you need to start small and build it up. There's no get rich quick schemes. There's no um, you know, magic bullet, so to speak. It's it's hard work and it's time, right? It's you know, people say, oh, we need to time the market. No, it's it's not timing the market. It's time in the market, right? Um, so, you know, sometimes you have to sacrifice where you want would like to live and the type of house you'd like to live in. You know, you might have to move out of town, out of the city, um, to a cheaper location, and and build a and and buy a, a cheaper property that may need some work. You know, I was always lucky because I was always able to turn my hand to renovating. Not everyone is like that. Um, And I always found, you know, the unpolished diamond or the ugly duckling in the street that was cheaper than all the other buildings and and was able to sort of value add it. So the only way I can suggest is you just have to start within your means and, and, and build it up. You know, what people need to understand is that you buy one little house or a little apartment, as time goes on and the values keep rising, which, you know, over time I, I believe they do, um, uh, you, you, you end up with free equity in there, you know, and that allows you to free that up and, and buy something bigger. And then as time goes on, you, you end up with more free equity and you just move on. Um, and that's how you do it, you know. In terms of property development, location, location, location still rings true if you're developing a single set of units or entire apartment complexes. It's really just understanding the right locations um, because w- what happens is, and, and that's slowly changing as, as this type of um, owner-occupier product becomes more and more prevalent, but um, th- there's only, see, if you, if you um, develop a three-bedroom apartment, let's say it's 140 square metres, right, um, and I'm talking sort of Melbourne terms now, Sydney, it's different again. Um, you know, that could be anywhere between 10,000 a square metre to 15,000 a square metre, right? In Sydney, it could be, you know, 15 to 30, right, depending on where you are. Um, so that's quite a big price point. So um, if you're talking Melbourne, for instance, you, you know, you can't expect to go to a suburb where the median house price is 700000 800000 and build a three-bedroom apartment where you have to get at least 10 a metre or 9 a metre to make it stack up um, and therefore you're selling it for 1.4 million or 1.3 million. It's just not going to work because it's, it's, all, it's all about price parity. 
Um, and that's why you find owner-occupier apartments tend to spring up in the sort of more affluent blue-chip-type suburbs um, where, you know, the price parity is such that, you know, the downsizers might have a house worth $3 million, they can sell that and afford an apartment for $1.5 or $1.6 or whatever, $2 million. Um, and, and that changes depending on the suburb. If the suburb has a median price, so, you know, if you're in Point Piper and the median is whatever it is, I don't know what it is, $5 million or $10 million, whatever the median is, you know, it's, it's, you, you can afford a more expensive um, apartment. And that all comes down to, you know, that distills down to the land price, right, because it, um, and that's the economics of it. So first, first and foremost is you need to find the right suburbs and the right locations that have a catchment of downsizers that have the ability to sell their home and move into that location or move within that location. Because most people want to be close by. They don't want to move too far from where they've, lived, they've you know, raised their children. Um, so that's that's number one, and then obviously it's it's all it's all all the other things that go with it. It's 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 choosing the right apartment design, the right floor plan, um, the right look of the building, um, the the amenity within the apartment, the the appliances, you know, the finishes, all of that. When it all comes down to the final sale, Chalmers says it's crucial to know how the market is performing. You don't have to do it yourself. Agents can sometimes be a developer's best friend. The apartments are, it's market driven. So, you know, you talk to several agents or, you know, one or two trusted agents and, and you get a feel for what that market is. And when you're in the groove, you sort of know, you know, you know that, and, and it, you know, when the market's rising, it's it's always inching up and you say, oh, geez, that project, you know, down the road by that developer, you know, reached 12,000 a metre in Melbourne. Oh, shoot, really, that's amazing. And then, you know, two months go by and says, oh, guess what, you know, around the corner, they're getting 13, you know. And you sort of get, get a feel for the market. Um, and you know sometimes when it's been pushed too much. And um, so, you know, you, you always talk to agents, you get an average of what they're saying, you, you know, you put it into your FISO and and hopefully you get more by the time you, you're ready to sell because you've you've specced it up and you've you know and the product is a nice product and you've done a beautiful design and the location's good and and hopefully the market accepts that and and sees what you see and you know what you saw in it and you get the top dollar. Um, it's not it's not a function of this is my cost so there I've got to add you know 20% margin on it. Um, and this is what I need to get. That's what happens sometimes. Some developers do that. But I, I think that's a bit fake. You've got to start from the values and know what the market is and then work backwards and hope that you and, and work and, and, and work it in such a way where you know you hope to get a margin. Chiama feels lucky he hasn't experienced a situation where the market has turned mid-development. But it's not just luck. He says learning from the mistakes of others can help safeguard your future returns. There's been you know, many, many instances that I can, uh, that I know of, where sites have come back onto the market. You know, they've stalled. Developers have made assessments. More often than not, it's not the market that's turned. It's they've, they've made the wrong assumptions. You know, they've bought a site where they, you know, it's, it's ten thousand dollars a square meter every day of the week, and they've probably thought that they can get twelve. And then, you know, they've gone through the whole planning permit, they've, they've spent a heap of money on it, uh, on the marketing, the whole thing, and then they, and then all the agents are saying, no, we can't get you 
12, it's 10, or we might push to 11, but that's as far as we can go and the project doesn't stack up. And a lot of those instances you see, you know, there's those sites hit the market again. You know, they're, they're sold with a permit. Now, sometimes it's because the market's risen, you know, a lot. The developers are trying to cash in and thought, you know, why should I go through all the pain and risk of developing when I can make a nice little profit by just selling the land? That happens. But 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 it's that's not always the case. Sometimes they're selling it because they can't make it work. And 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 the agents are throwing ridiculous prices on the land because they're trying to recoup all their co- what they paid plus the stamp duty plus their interest plus their planning costs their marketing costs. And they're trying to recoup all that back and load it onto the land price and it doesn't stack up. Then you look at it and you, you you just know you go this is a ridiculous price. It's not going to work. We all know the way the world treats home, work, and leisure is changing. By his own assessment. Chiama thinks our capital cities will be leading the way and investors should act accordingly. I do think that we will become more and more like New York. Um, I think, you know, I've, I develop in both Melbourne and Sydney and I, I feel um, Melbourne seems to be more ahead of the curve than Sydney in terms of um, creating product and, and design. Um, that's not it's not an argument of who's better, right? It's just I just feel Melbourne is uh, is a tougher market and it's, I don't know, it just feels like it's ahead of the curve. Uh, I feel both, um, you know, within Australia, the Eastern Seaboard will become more and more like New York um, in terms of um, service-related type buildings, um, mixture of hotel rooms within um, apartment buildings, concierge. It's more service related, I think, you know, um, as time goes on. I think that's where people are going generally, you know. People want more time to spend either working to make the money to pay for the services or relaxing and, you know, having their ironing done for them, having the cleaner. You know, having someone who opens the front door when they walk in, having someone who washes their car. I just think there's going to be more of that, more overlaid, not just a, an apartment building with a front door. It's going to be there's going to be services added into it. I I feel that's that's where I see it happening as, as the market becomes more mature and sophisticated. Um, you know, I see that happening. When thinking about the rise of city living. Chiama says, look no further than Melbourne's very own recent transformation. Everything goes through cycles. You know, cities, the cities are um, getting more and more populated um, ever since, um, say, Melbourne, for instance, postcode 3000 came about, I can't remember when that was, early 90s, where, you know, back then it was just office buildings and retail. The city was dead at night. You know, come 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, it was like a ghost town. Um, and the council turned that around and, you know, wanted to induce more development in the city and have a look at it, it's, it's booming. So it now, it now becomes a 24-7 city. You know, the workers go away during the day, but the people come home into their apartments at night, so it's 24-7. Um, and that helps the retail and it makes it more safer and lively, you know. Um, and I just think that will continue to happen. Suburbs are always pegged to distance to the CBD, aren't they? Um, and... Um, the good ones are always sort of closer and accessible. Um, generally, the people who have money to buy those apartments, you know, generally work in the city or close to, um, generally have the high-paying jobs to be able to support that purchase um, or are semi-retired anyway or fully retired but still want to be close by. Um, I mean, there's no coincidence that, you know, all the, all the nice suburbs in all the cities um, are close to the city, 
you know, you get the odd ones that are out further further out. Um, you get those pockets. But generally speaking, it's like a, a shockwave effect, you know. The closer in, the, the more valuable your suburb is and as it goes out. So um, that, I think it's just a function of that, you know. It's not more about – it's not about me wanting to be in the CBD or developing close to the CBD. It's just choosing those suburbs that are sought after that have the demographic. They just tend to be near the CBD. In terms of personal habits that have aided him in attaining success, both in life and in property, Chiama's work ethic stands out. Apart from um, just sort of training myself to have to know every element of the of the um, process so that nothing comes undone, you know, um, I'm, I would sort of say my, my biggest trait um, is, is that I'm relentless, you know. Um, it sounds a bit OCD, but you know, I make sure that by the end of every day, there's not one email that's come into my inbox that I haven't either actioned or read and understood. You know, um, I can't sleep at night knowing that I get bombarded by all these emails, and I can't sleep at night knowing that uh, I haven't read them or there's something urgent that needed actioning and I haven't done it. Um, so I always clean up my inbox, and I was like that in the early days when we didn't have email. I used to always make sure my intro was empty before I left the office. Um, and I used to see other project managers around me, my, my peers, you know, they would just be floundering. You'd see their inbox just overflowing and they weren't performing and they were just getting cogged down. So um, what I do is I clear the day, right? Sure, there's always a little bit of unfinished business, but I clear the day and what that allows me to do is jump on the front foot the next day and start chasing people um, up on emails I'd sent the day before um, and or actioning new items. So it allows you to move forward. You know, if you don't do that, you just get clogged up and you won't get results and you start spinning around and doing donuts. So that's probably my trait. Despite the personal qualities that have contributed to his own success, Chiama feels as if drawing on the special skills of others, even though through osmosis, is just as important. What happens is you, you tend to hang around like-minded people. So my mentors are my peers, and some are older, more experienced, some are younger, um, more energetic, you know. So you, you, you tend to um, – it's like anything, you know. If you're interested in classic cars, you hang around people who have classic cars. So if you're interested in, you know, uh, being healthy and sporty, you sort of hang around gymnasiums and talk to people, you know, about fitness. So um, you tend to sort of – in my career, throughout my career um, – all my friends are in the same industry, you know. I've got friends outside of the industry, but my colleagues and close friends that I deal with every day are in the industry. You're always swapping notes. You're always bouncing off each other. Um, and some of them are older and have been, they've walked the walk long before you did and 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 give you, you know, their, share their experiences. And, yeah, so it's, it's, more, it's not like one sort of old hand that sort of I call on a daily basis, you know, how do I do this? You know, it's not like that. It's just um, a group of different people that you, you talk to, you know, on a weekly, daily, weekly basis. Chiama is constantly working on himself, filling his mind with knowledge to draw from when it really counts. It really is about mindset. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm very proud of my uh, my library. I've got, you know, just about every book that's been written out there about wealth and strategies and um, and you know mindsets and you know think and grow rich and all, all those types of books. Um, I've read them, 
you know, and you need to. And I don't, I don't believe that every strategy in every book is is right, and that you should just follow every strategy. But it's just building up a compendium in your mind and, and, and building up that mindset. It's just constantly thinking about it um, and and just, yeah, getting confident in, in knowing. By reading so many books, I mean, you know, if you're well read, you're generally good at something. So um, by reading so many of those books, you start to think like that and that's very important. Depending on your stage of life and your investing experience, Chiyama believes that the same material might even provide different lessons. I mean, I don't read those books now, but I did in the early days and I've still got them. You know, I've never thrown them away. Um, uh, but you, when you're young and you're starting out, you do need to sort of um, read those books because, you know, you pick up little ideas um, here and there throughout multiple books. Um, but it's not only about the ideas. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Jan Summers' book because that was about strategy and ideas. Right, but the other thing about that book was it sets the scene on, um, you know, society where you sit today and what's in store for you if you're, you know, working a nine to five job and you know what, what are you going to have when you retire? Well, you're not really going to have much except the, the pension to look forward to, right? Um, and and that really set the scene and that that was really profound for me because it sort of it, it sort of explains really well the reasons why you need to build wealth and you know property investment is one vehicle to achieve that um but all the other books about you know just how to think and what you know what the millionaires think like and you know what are their traits and you know um it's important chiama has kindly shared with us some of the books he has found most inspiring people books um you know there's one book that i like and it's you know what i did was i started reading books about you know how to how to build capital and how to create capital and then i started reading books about capital itself and, and money and just mindsets of people, you sort of you start to sort of morph into different books. There's one called, um, which I loved, called The Mystery of Capital um, by, I hope I say it correctly, but or pronounce it correctly, Hernando de Soto. Um, that was a great book because what it talks about was, um, you know, the, the, the mysterious capital. Why are some countries wealthy and others not, you know? And why do countries like Africa that have so much wealth under their ground, within the land, why are they poor, you know, whereas other countries are, are wealthy? And, you know, there, uh, there's a lot of things spoken about in this book, but one of the, the overriding things that I took away from it was the, um, the legal system, the Westminster, you know, the British Western world legal system that allows... Um, people to unlock the value of their land by way of the, you know, the titling system. And when you think about it, that's very true. You know, where you've got um, countries that have um, a legal system that allows you to own freehold title, uh, what you're really doing is you're unlocking the wealth in the land that sits below you. I'm not talking about mineral wealth and coal and gas. I'm talking about owning your own property. Whereas in countries like Africa and other countries where they don't really have um, a strong um, land rights system. It's all about, you know, land that's been brought down from generation to generation and, you know, and some generations lose it and it's it's all leasehold and it's it's, it's not, um, you don't have that sort of um, uh, right to it, you know, and that's important. So that was an interesting book. So there's, you know, I just read lots of books that sort of, you know, have different angles on on capital and property and, and um, thinking, you know, thinking rich. Like there's another one called Your Money or Your Life, you know. 
transforming your relationship with money and achieving financial independence. So there's a whole range of books like that that just sort of get you into um, the mindset. Another one, How to Think Like a Millionaire, you know. I read them all. So there's another one, um, The Richest Man in Babylon. That's a famous book. Right, I love that book, and I just remembered that one. That's uh, that's another good book, and it's all about just putting aside your savings, you know, and, and, and building it up. So what's next for Danny Chiyama? Even having already achieved so much and with many accolades to his name, I'm excited about just keep doing what I'm doing. Um, I love the process and I love seeing the finished product. I'm always excited about that next site, you know, what's that next site going to be? What's that next building going to look like? Um, what, I, what I really love doing is, you know, identifying a site and working out what, what's the right product to put on it, um, coming up with, a, with an apartment plan, a spec, um, a colour scheme, you know, working together with the architect. Um, but, but, and then, you know, being satisfied with it. But what I really love um, seeing is that purchasers come, you know, to the display suite at the sales stage and fall in love with that vision, you know. That's, that's what's priceless. When you come up, when you create something from your mind and you put it all on, on paper um, and purchasers come along and absolutely fall in love with that vision, you know. So that's what I enjoy. Thank you to Danny Chiyama, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. Do you find yourself stressed out not knowing how or where to find the best property deals or what the best strategy is to build a wealth-generating portfolio? Well, Dragon Dominski can help you while you save time and money. With about two decades of experience as an investor and expert buyer's agent, he finds positively geared properties with development potentials and secures and negotiates off-market deals for his clients. Now, he's offering you a no-obligation 45-minute strategy call to get you started. Just simply text the code BAA with your name and email address to 0405-105-074 to get your no-obligation free 45-minute strategy call. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.